The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, media and technology, authors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There were all of these loyalty tests right from the beginning, but even those things that we just touched on, the fact that they're having people who build cars and rockets root through the code of a global social platform and decide who should stay and who should go, shows that there was an immense amount of hubris and not a lot of curiosity because they assumed that Twitter employees, for lack of a better term, were idiots. (laughs) and should shut up and leave. In case you missed it, back at you with another Full Disclosure Rewind, featuring highlights from recent episodes. You'll hear about Abraham Lincoln's powers of persuasion, Elon Musk's appetite for destruction, the intersecting chess games in the Middle East after October 7th, and China's play for electric vehicle dominance. Do stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Welcome to Full Disclosure Rewind. We start with NPR's Steven Skeep, who we hosted on stage at the University of Richmond to discuss his book, Differ We Must, on Abraham Lincoln's leadership journey. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live with Steve Inskeep, the co-host of Morning Edition. It's America's most widely heard radio program. Everybody's familiar with his voice. The bestseller, the book published in 2023, is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Steve, while you're here, I have to borrow your mellifluous voice. Uh, read something. Whoa! Sir. Okay. And what the amazing irony is that Steve wakes up earlier than roosters, but he's a lot more mellifluous. Day in, day out. You got, what time do you wake up? Okay, many people ask that. Um, <laughs> on days that I do the show, I, um, and I'm trying to flip through a page at the same time that I'm doing this, I get up at three o'clock in the morning. People are horrified when I say that. <laughs> I get to work at four, and morning edition must begin every day at 5 a.m. <clears throat> Eastern time to the second, never one second late. Um, then every day is different. We have this live program, and then we go into other things. I may be working ahead for a different day's show, or there may be urgent live coverage that lasts all morning until noon, depending on the, on the news. So every day is different. On this day that you and I are talking, I did get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I just take a couple seconds here? I would like Please. to read you something from the chapter that is set in this little place called uh, Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> And I will tell you. And while you're looking, I have to say that was really striking to me that, you know, as the war is coming to an end and, and Lincoln's own assassination is approaching and you have swaths of Richmond set on fire by retreating Confederate troops, that you have this apparition-like figure with not that much security. I mean, yeah. he's going in between a pontoon boat on the James and the old capital of the Confederacy, and he isn't kicking up his feet exactly. It's, it's a very kind of modest, somber yeah. exercise. I mean, it's hard to imagine the Secret Service signing off on this particular trip for a president today. 
So it's April 1865. The Civil War has been going for almost exactly four years. Finally, Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, falls. The Confederate Army retreats with an idea that they will continue the fight, although it ends up lasting only a few more days. General Lee goes away. The Confederate troops go away. As they go, they set fire to the tobacco warehouses downtown, and other things catch on fire, and a large part of Richmond is torched to the extent that smoke hangs in a pall over the city for days. And it happens that Lincoln is at the headquarters of the Union General, General Grant, just a few miles outside town at City Point. He knew that this moment was coming and was on hand for it and wanted to see Richmond for himself. Got on a steamboat with uh, this uh, guy named Admiral Porter. In fact, it was a little flotilla of steamboats and they went up the James, which is a tidal river, and the boats began running aground as they went to shallower and shallower water. And finally, they had to transfer into a small boat and they ended up at Rocket's Landing which is a couple of miles from the absolute dead center of town, which apparently his guide, Admiral Porter, had no idea. He thought they were going to get off at the landing and go to the military headquarters, but it was a couple miles away. They disembarked at the steamboat landing. Porter didn't know the city, so he couldn't know they faced a walk of more than two miles to the new army headquarters in the center of town. They'd gone only a few steps when they encountered several black men who recognized Lincoln. <coughs> Porter had a tendency to dramatize the stories he told, but it may well have been, as he later said, that a man who regarded Lincoln as his liberator knelt at the president's feet. Lincoln told the man he shouldn't do that. The crowd grew as the president walked. Quiet streets came alive with people, while others came to the upper windows of the buildings. Lincoln had trouble moving, and Porter began to worry. While the freed people would never harm the president, he couldn't say who else was in town. He ordered 12 sailors from the barge to take up rifles with bayonets to clear the way. People continued reaching out to touch the president or talk with him. It was a warm day, Porter said. The atmosphere was suffocating, but Mr. Lincoln could be seen plainly by every man, woman, and child towering head and shoulders above the crowd. His face was covered in perspiration. He stopped once and said a few words to the men and women whose freedom he had decreed. He said they were as free as air. And then he tried to move, but people could not be made to understand that they were detaining the president, Porter said. They looked upon him as belonging to them. At the newly established Union Army headquarters, the soldiers took note of an immense crowd of the people down the street and gradually realized it was the president's vast bodyguard with Lincoln, Porter, and the sailors in the center. A moment of history here in Richmond, Virginia. And as this happened, was it at the old Confederate uh, capital that he meets an old friend uh, who yes. was an antebellum Supreme Court justice? Yes. It's and, and it's one of these quirks of history. This was before Appomattox. And, uh, and, and Lee, you know, surrendering formally, of which Lincoln's son witnessed. Yes. History could have ended differently. Uh, history could have ended a little bit differently. It is a fascinating story. Um, Lincoln got himself to the, what is now known as the White House of the Confederacy. Maybe, I forget if it was known exactly by that yeah, then, yeah, but yeah. it's a tourist site today, I know. And walked around Jefferson Davis's house, walked around his rival's house, the other president's house, and met this, uh, learned that this man was in town and sent for him. 
John A. Campbell had been a member of the United States Supreme Court. He was part of the majority that decided the Dred Scott case in favor of slavery in 1857. He uh, believed, and this is a remarkable thing, he believed that secession was wrong, but decided to do it anyway. Um, lingered in Washington longer than other people, but finally went home to Alabama uh, and did nothing for a couple of years, but then agreed to become the Assistant Secretary of War for the Confederacy, and so he was in Richmond, and when all the rest of the government fled, he stayed. Because he had met Lincoln, he knew Lincoln, and he thought he could negotiate some proper end where Virginians could resume the governance of their affairs. Lincoln talked to this man who had been in rebellion against him, who had violated his oath to the United States. Lincoln talked with this guy and tried to do a deal with him to get the Virginia Army, General Lee's army, to surrender because he knew that would end the rebellion. In the end, it ultimately did not work out, and Lincoln withdrew the deal for various reasons because the federal government was determined to reconstruct, to build a new government in Virginia and not allow the old one to reassemble, even for the purpose of surrendering the army. But it says to me the lengths to which Lincoln would go and the way that his mind operated, and also that he was a little tricky because um, he wrote a letter about this saying that the gentlemen who have acted as the legislature of Virginia shall assemble for the purpose of telling the army to surrender. Um, but when pressed on this later, he said, I did not admit that they actually were the legitimate legislature of Virginia, which I don't want them to be. I said they acted as the legislature See, isn't of that, Virginia. See, isn't that hair splitting? Isn't that very kind of slippery? Why, yes. As a matter of fact, self. it is. I yes. mean, he's, he's this, this renowned, yes. canonized president, but this person was winging it, and a lot was done on faith. He walked in. I imagine nobody patted him down. This is a person who could have been arrested for yeah. treason right on the scene. Totally. But I think he recognized him. You have certain honor and magnanimity. You were a Supreme Court justice. You were half-hearted about succession. But still, uh, he even gave himself an out, and continuously in this book, he kept giving himself yeah, out. Yeah, no, it's a remarkable thing, and this is a thing that I want people to know about Lincoln, or at least that I did not understand uh, at all before doing the research on this book. There's so much that I felt that I learned that I did not know in doing this research. And one is that while Lincoln is famous for his words, the Gettysburg Address, the second inaugural, he was an amazing public speaker and writer, he should be nearly as famous for the things that he did not say because he would hold his fire, he would decline to say things to the point where people thought that Honest Abe was deceptive. Um, one of his friends said that he would speak with such seeming candor as to give his visitor the idea that he had disclosed all his plans and purposes when in reality to have spoke, he had spoken so carefully as to have disclosed nothing. Um, and I mean, you don't want that to go too far. I mean, you wouldn't actually want to deceive people, but there is a kind of political cleverness in that. And it gets to that question of assembling a coalition of people to do what you think is right, to do what you think needs to be done, even though they have a great variety of views. You were listening to some of the recent live show we had with Steve Inskeep, author of Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Catch the entire conversation wherever you get your pods. We continue with some of my recent deep dive with reporter Zoe Schiffer on her book, Extremely Hardcore, Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. 
the billionaire's vastly overpriced acquisition of the social network is already going down as one of history's costliest self-owns. For the layman out there, you know Elon Musk primarily as a person who's ramped up Twitter, the the modern time's most successful auto startup. I believe it's still worth more than any other automaker in the world after the correction. I mean, Toyota has had a catch-up, but really, unbelievable. He was not the founder of the company, but he came in and dealt with its ramp-up. And I've covered this, Mm -hmm. you know, since he kind of came out of the gate. This is a guy who, when Consumer Reports, I remember circa 2012, reviewed the Model S and said that you know it is the highest score we've ever given to a kind of a mm. safety and all-around score. He wanted to come in and put an addendum and a correction to the press release to say, actually, you have to specify that we broke your machine. We are so you know <laughs> substantial. Like that's that's the mindset of the guy and the competition. Then to take that and be SpaceX and to have the boring company. And you talk about key man risk. I'm sure you've read the Ronan Farrow investigation mm-hmm. in the New Yorker. This is a person who is unilaterally deciding whether to shut on or shut off satellites that can inform Ukraine as the you know Russian military position. He's a very personification of key man risk. He's worth $260 billion, and he decides, you know what, I need to take on this uh, moribund but still profitable uh, social media channel. Uh, what strikes me, and I'm sure others have said this, that there were no kind of corporate governance guardrails on that. I imagine the Twitter's management in the very kind of bifurcated public stock uh, perspective of the world is, what oh, we got to take the highest bid. If he comes mm-hmm. in with the highest bid, and I have to have that fiduciary interest. I don't care what happens to safety, to security. I don't have to vet it. Maybe there could have been a national interest, national security concern. So they took it. But then, Zoe, I know I'm, I'm sounding long-winded with this because it blows my mind. Banks came in mm-hmm. in a slow-motion car wreck and said, okay, $44 billion price, and the tech market is corrected. He could have probably bought Twitter for half of that price had he waited. The banks ponied up $13 billion, and they still consummated that amount. This is what bothers me, and I want to I unpack this with you because you get it culturally. I imagine that that was ponied up just for proximity to Elon Musk as a call option on future deals, whether it's his personal wealth management, whether it's taking SpaceX public, because those banks are still holding on to that debt. Yeah, absolutely. There is no question that if Elon Musk was not Elon Musk, he wouldn't have gotten the same deal that he got in terms of the bank loans that he received in order to buy Twitter. The company was extremely over leveraged from the moment that he purchased the company. But as you said, the banks were making this assessment that it wasn't just helping Elon Musk buy Twitter. It was helping one of the most powerful people in the world who runs multiple successful companies. And if they could help him out and be in his good graces with the Twitter deal, there was an opportunity to make more money elsewhere. We don't know how the banks feel today now that their investments have gone down so precipitously. But one has to imagine that there is some level of bad blood based on that decision. Well, I I used to work in the brokerage industry. I worked on Wall Street. And that's what actually catapulted me to a career in journalism is that there was so much uh, interest. uh, There was was dealing at cross purposes with your clients. Like you'd prioritize Mm. one over the other. I don't want to get in the weeds with you too much. But, you know, in terms of like that sycophant culture, tell this man what he wants to hear, not what Mm. he needs to hear. Reminds me of the Zappos founder somewhat. Was it Tony Shea who 
he had this terrible decline into kind of drug abuse and mm-hmm. self-harm and he died. I was thinking about um, this uh, tell-all recently. I read about uh, Bridgewater's uh, CEO and founder. This You have so much money and so much power that you just decree as, as much as you might say, I'm for free, free speech or radical transparency. Everything that you've documented in this book is like, he will fire you unless you tell him what he wants to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Twitter employees would say time and again, with Elon Musk, it's not the right answer. It's the least fireable answer. And that's why I think the Elon Musk that we see today, the one who is running Twitter, now known as X Corp, is a very different Elon Musk from the one who was building Tesla and SpaceX. I think before he had more people around him who would push back on him, who would tell him the truth. And over time, that circle has simply gotten smaller and smaller. Elon Musk has grown more isolated, more surrounded, as you said, by sycophants, people who tell him yes, no matter what, who tell him everything he says is brilliant, who, when he tells the same joke again and again in the meeting, don't mention you're telling the same joke again. They laugh hysterically as if it's the first time they've heard it. You know, I'm thinking about the time that, look, he tried to fight the deal after the mania or whatever happened. It might have been a bipolar episode where he realized, whoops, uh, $44 billion was way too high a price. He blamed bots. He said that management wasn't forthcoming. There was a back and forth, back and forth Delaware Chancery Court. And when he realized he had to face the music, I don't know if it was reputational risk or throwing more bad money after good money. He consummated the transaction and he walked in with that kitchen sink. And as you so incredibly describe in the book, is the the mood was almost immediately Gestapo-esque. The old tweeps nicknamed Elon's Uh, I guess his coterie, the goons. And I want to quote, you said, there was this assignment that needed to be done by Sunday morning. Those who didn't, those employees who did not have a sentence written about them would be laid off with two months of severance. Managers scrambled to justify why employees who were pregnant or undergoing cancer treatment should keep their jobs. Quote, it was like Schindler's List, one executive remembers. Nobody slept that entire night. Some managers asked their peers to put them on the layoff list, worried that if they resigned, they wouldn't get severance. And just this unbelievable culture of fear. At any point, he could march through the halls. Eventually, he wasn't playing uh, vendors. The bathrooms weren't getting cleaned. He was forcing people to, uh, I I can't believe you illustrated this, like uh, violate the building inspection rules and turn things into kind of quasi-hotel rooms. There was a woman with a nursing newborn there. Again, no board or no guardrails could come against this and say, uh, this isn't legit. I understand you broke it. You bought it, you own it, but there should be protections. Yeah, no, I mean, he he intentionally sets up his companies in such a way that if he does have a board, they're very subservient to him. And in the case of Twitter, obviously, he does not. He has investors, but even then, he's drawing from his close circle of friends, and he really doesn't have many people who he has to answer to. But let's unpack that posture that you described right from the beginning. And I know it was it was so breathless and a mouthful what I said. I need to no, shut no. up, but I'm fresh <laughs> off. I'm fresh off the contact high of reading this. And oh, the way you... So. The way you kind of dabbed it, dispensed it, like leaves you with little these these episodes, these cartridges of trauma. But go ahead. Okay, so it's so kind of you to say, um, and I genuinely appreciate it. Talking to someone who's actually read the book is you have to. It's very special because I've done a bunch of these, and it's never clear to me <laughs> if someone has or not. But going back to what you said, so 
Elon Musk, Twitter is in a relatively stable financial position before Elon Musk buys the company. The economy is tanking, but the ads market is cyclical and it'll bounce back. People aren't particularly worried about it. Elon Musk buys the company. He saddles it with $13 billion in bank debt. The interest alone on that debt in January is going to be more than a billion dollars. And so his priority right from the beginning is firing as many people as possible and cutting costs as quickly as possible. So he doesn't come in with a lot of curiosity. Employees would say in these early meetings when they were trying to explain how Twitter's backend architecture worked, he would cut them off and be very dismissive. And immediately he comes in with the goons, his close circle of lieutenants, and they're tasked with kind of executing the layoffs, cut as many people as you can, as quickly as you can. And he's having this team of Tesla and SpaceX engineers actually root through Twitter's code base and figure out which engineers they think are smart and successful and should stay. And actually and which emailing ones... engineers and say, you have 24 hours to print yes. out some of your code. Justify exactly. your love. It is the most mercurial. Exactly. Yeah, there were all of these loyalty tests right from the beginning. But even those things that we just touched on, the fact that they're having people who build cars and rockets root through the code of a global social platform and decide who should stay and who should go shows that there was an immense amount of hubris and not a lot of curiosity because they assumed that Twitter employees, for lack of a better term, were idiots and should shut up and leave. I mean, I I can't get the image out of my head of, of, you know, my high school uh, philosophy and economics teacher, Mr. Lutness, who Let's listen to this pod, I think, loyally. He tried to teach us about these certain logical fallacies, and I don't have the Latin names for them everywhere, but it's certainly a logical fallacy when you come in and you you put out effectively this huge leverage buyout for an asset that was bought at really an uneconomic value, and you come in and immediately say, we're on fire. We're going to be broke unless we start slashing over four months or something. Well, we're broke because you took on all this debt. And it actually, you're not on the hook for the debt necessarily. The company is on the hook for the debt. So, you know, no one, no one even to call that out. Clearly the old board, the old management was cleared out. None of his Silicon Valley bros, I don't know, Jurvetson or Calcanis or anybody's like, uh, dude, this this could rebound to you so reputationally awfully if this crashes and you're there slashing and burning if you get employment lawsuits on your hands. I never saw any example of that being done by his his insider group. No. And I think, you know, kind of like Donald Trump, Elon Musk does have this Teflon-like quality where his fans are so ardent that it does seem like in the inner circle and the people who love him no matter what, who have bought Tesla stock and want to prop him up no matter what, there's very little that he can do wrong. And we kind of saw two versions of reality start to coalesce after the acquisition went through. There were people who were cheering him on, who thought that Twitter was faster and more fun than it used to be. And then everyone else who felt like the platform was swiftly declining and was probably, if not going to go out of business, then certainly going to be an entirely different platform than the one that they had known and loved. Well, Zoe, who comes in and punishes their power users, you being one of them, for example. (laughs) I'm thinking Kara Swishers and others and saying, okay, we're here. Not only is he not nibbling on your ear and giving you stuff, he's taking stuff away from you, namely the verified checkmark. And immediately, like through some haphazard process and some misunderstanding with Stephen King and all of these people, he says, oh, $8. And so it became, explain how it kind of became this perverse 
thing that it was not a good housekeeping seal of assurance within like 48 hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. So the first major project that Elon Musk launches at Twitter is tying verification to a subscription model. Previously, if you were a prominent person across sports media politics, you could get a blue check mark ostensibly. But crucially, almost any member of the mainstream press could also get verified pretty fast if their institution had a savvy social media manager. And this really rubbed Elon Musk the wrong way because he has enormous mistrust of the mainstream media. He doesn't like journalism or journalists. And so immediately he has a double incentive to kind of change how the blue check mark is handed out. He wants to shift Twitter's business model away from advertising because advertisers want things like content moderation and towards subscription, which would kind of free him to allow as much free speech as possible. Simultaneously in doing this, he's going to be able to take away the blue check mark from journalists and other groups who th he thinks are not deserving of it. Unfortunately, the immediate rollout of Twitter Blue is so botched. The platform is overrun with impersonators. All of the things that employees, ironically, had warned Elon Musk about came to pass and advertisers start to flee. He's actually forced at the very beginning to roll Twitter Blue back. I mean, share share the Eli Lilly example with us. That's, yeah, so, just, that's just so beyond surreal. <laughs> yeah, we had this activist and journalist who was kind of scrolling through. I interviewed him for the book and he's scrolling through Twitter one day and sees a bunch of tweets look, they look like they're from celebrities, but they're saying really awful, racist, surprising things. And he realizes, oh, Elon Musk has rolled out the new Twitter blue. And this is actually an opportunity. He considers tweeting something silly from this account, changing his name to something different and say uh, to something like Subway and tweeting that, um, the footlong sandwich is now 13 inches, but he realizes that he wants to do something more with the potential power. So he changes the name of this account <laughs> to Eli Lilly, one of the biggest drug manufacturers in the United yeah. States, one of the biggest producers of insulin, crucially. And he tweets, he changes his profile picture and everything to match it. He does in his profile say that it's a parody account. But if you just glance at it, it does look like the real Eli, Eli Lilly. And then he tweets out, insulin is free. And this tweet goes completely viral. Eli Lilly is completely panicking. They're calling Twitter. They're demanding that the tweet be taken down. But for hours and hours, it stays up. Ultimately, Eli Lilly is forced to actually cut the price of insulin. It's not clear whether this is a direct result, but it obviously does seem linked. And it's such a clear example of the the very things that Twitter employees had been warning about. We need to slow down this launch. Here are all of the things that are going to happen if you push out Twitter blue in this way and in this manner. Instantly, they come to pass. You were listening to some of the recent episode with Zoe Schiffer inside Elon Musk's Twitter catch the entire conversation wherever you listen to podcasts. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Follow on all social media at handle fulldradio. If you're just joining us, welcome to Full Disclosure Rewind, featuring highlights from recent episodes. Hussein Ibish of the Arab Gulf States Institute came on to discuss the confusing, constantly shifting enemies of my enemies calculations in the Middle East after October 7th. I have to wonder what happened in the immediate shell shock of October 7th, yeah. where you would think that this would be a pungent excuse for a Bibi Netanyahu to convince DC this is the time to attack 
the mullahs of Iran. Right. But something happens, and I'm, I don't quite understand this. Some back-channel impression that I got was that they said, look, we nominally support these guys, we fund them, but we had really no idea that this was about to happen. Yes. What do you so, believe okay. happened behind the scenes? All right. This is a great question. I'm, I'm going to tackle it on both sides. So we know because of, it was reported at the time in the Lebanese press, and then subsequent to October 7, it was reported in the Western and Israeli press, we know that there were a series of meetings in a war room maintained in Beirut that between the Quds Force, Hamas, and Hezbollah, in which the Hamas figures, including Saleh al-Aruri, the, the guy that Israel assassinated in Beirut uh, in late December, spoke vaguely about some sort of military attack on Israel. And Hezbollah gave them what Hezbollah regarded as very vague assurances of generalized support. Hamas thought they were getting, apparently thought they may have been getting some sort of a commitment to join the fray, but that was not the case. Hamas, in preparing for October 7, used military-grade secrecy and information security. So I think it's pretty clear that uh, even the Hamas leaders in Qatar, um, who are the nominal leaders of, of Hamas, uh, probably didn't know the date of this, though I think they knew about the operation. And it seems to me uh, sort of obvious that um, the Iranian leadership didn't know either about the specific plan or the date, and that that's true of Hezbollah as well, and the Houthis, and that the only people who knew were those with a need to know within the Qassam brigades, and then also within the Hamas leadership in Gaza, like Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas in Gaza. So is and it possible to say that Hamas core Gaza went rogue? I mean, if, they're, if no. they got a wink-wink yeah. reassurance from Hezbollah that I imagine in, in that body language that'd be like, if we yeah. do this, if we do yeah. this, we're going to get the follow-on from your more higher-grade missiles to the north, that Iran is going to back us from that side, the Houthi situation will flare up, there's always Syria. I mean, I'm trying to imagine, it's well, amazing to me when they talk about the dedicated copper wires in the tunnels yeah. underneath, and nobody pierced this, nobody had any right. idea... And it seems like very quickly did the United States and the State Department and, and Pentagon say, we don't believe Iran was directly involved in Right, this. right. Well, I think that's true, though. Um, I, I believe that. And I think it's sort of evident by looking at, at facts. Iran is implicated because Iran has been Hamas's main military sponsor for a decade now and for the decade before last. So there was a decade kind of break where Hamas and uh, Iran were not on great terms, so they maintained some military links. But basically, Qatar emerged as the main sponsor and home away from home for Hamas leaders during the Arab Spring decade between uh, 2011 and, say, uh, 2019. But you're right, Iran is sort of uh, implicated in the broader sense. In the exact planning and execution of October 7, I think Iran didn't know about it. Now, what ended up happening is, yeah, there, I think Hamas was hoping for a regional war. They weren't counting on it because they didn't know if Hezbollah would follow through and the others would follow through. And the, the rise of the Houthis as a factor, I think, is a surprise to, uh, not to Iran by any means, but probably to Hamas. I don't think Hamas was thinking much about the Houthis. And the Houthi actions in the Red Sea don't help Hamas particularly. I mean, just, it's really an Iranian thing, and I'll get to that in a second. But what I mean is that when the war started on, you know, October 7th, 
Hezbollah was the main question. Like, what would they do? They have a, an arsenal of 150,000 missiles and rockets, many of them with precision guidance. They can hit any target in Israel. They, they, if they had joined the battle on October 7 with their full arsenal, um, Israeli intelligence thinks there could have been 100,000 Israeli deaths in a oh, few no. days. Yeah, it's a, it's a mighty arsenal. And that's actually one of the reasons why Israel is sort of threatening uh, to go to war, to, is to reduce the power of that arsenal. Now, the Israelis, I think, thought maybe that this was a golden opportunity to get the United States involved, at least to take down uh, Hezbollah's capability, and maybe to kick off a cascade of events that led to a U.S.-Iranian confrontation and finally get the U.S., after 20 years of trying and failing, to attack Iran's nuclear facilities. But it, it's very clear that uh, what, even though Israel's defense minister, Yoav Galant, was demanding an, a, a preemptive attack on Hezbollah around October 11, 12, Joe Biden said, no way, absolutely not. If you do this, you're on your own. And I think that's been the American position until So was now. it sublimation that he sent super tankers to the region? I mean, this is, no, this no, is where no. I want to... No, here was Biden's, Biden's strategy with this war from the outset was to focus mainly on preventing the war from spreading, because what he didn't want was for the United States to get dragged into it. So as long, he, his calculation was, as long as it stays contained to Gaza, the damage strategically to U.S. interests can be contained, the U.S. can avoid getting involved, uh, Hezbollah doesn't want to get involved, that's clear, and Iran doesn't want Hezbollah to get involved, to answer your other question, because... Hezbollah's main purpose is as a deterrent to protect Iran from Israeli or American strikes against Iran itself. The Iran is not going to waste its trump card, which is Hezbollah, on a, a place and an organization, uh, Gaza and Hamas, that are so marginal to its strategic interests and even culturally and religiously to its agenda. It, 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 Gaza pulls at Palestinian heartstrings, but not much beyond that. If the fighting had spread to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem or the West Bank, everything would have been different, but it didn't. Nasrallah's reaction to the war was to go into hiding for three and a half weeks. He loves his own voice. He just relishes talking on TV. He and Netanyahu, now that uh, Hugo Chavez is dead, because he was the king of loving your own voice, but now that Chavez is dead, Netanyahu and Nasrallah like are co competitors for who loves their own voice more in the world. And it, Nasrallah was like nowhere to be seen for three and a half weeks because he didn't know what to say. And he didn't know what to say because the Iranians were kind of telling him, look, you're on your own, make up your own mind, do what you want, which is basically... Yeah, Hussein, it feels like a heist movie gone bad. It is a heist movie gone bad. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to make light of an of a, of atrocious situation with a significant loss of life and consternation across the world. But if a lot of this was hatched on kind of a wink-wink understanding that you got our back, right? So yes. did they imagine that if they went whole hog and did this invasion and mowed down as many Israelis as they did and kept the barrage going in and the Iron Dome might have neutralized that, but they took hostages yep, and they significantly upped the situation um, oh, yeah. that— Hezbollah would follow through with the with the okay of Tehran to rain all of these higher tech missiles on Israel, and that I think would effectively. They were that they were, I think Hamas was hoping for that, but they knew that there's nothing they could do 
and it's still the case that there's nothing they can do to make sure the war spreads anywhere outside of Gaza, even in the West Bank. They're just not capable of doing it. So what they could do is attack Israel with as much force as possible and as much savagery as possible in order to change the equation, hoping to kick off a regional war. That hasn't happened yet, but it still easily could, right? The, the danger has not passed for the world, and the hope of Hamas is not gone. So it still could happen. I think what Hamas's second idea was uh, is that this war with Israel, getting Israel to invade Gaza, and that's what they intended. I think they knew that this was going to happen. They knew what they were baiting the Israelis to do because they understand Israel. What they want is an Israeli reoccupation of the urban centers of Gaza so that they can event the remnants of Hamas can launch an insurgency, a long-term insurgency against Israeli forces. The people have to understand what Hamas is about. The prime directive of Hamas since it was founded by the Brotherhood, Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza in 1987, is to take over the Palestinian national movement. People form political movements to get power. And you have to get power internally first. You can't go after external enemies with any great efficacy until you've secured your power at home. So the prime directive of Hamas, still unattained from its founding, has been take over the Palestinian national movement from the secular nationalists in Fatah and make the Palestinian cause an Islamist cause led by them and their friends. And the crown jewel in the Palestinian national movement that the big achievement that it has gotten since it was reformed in the late 60s under Arafat is the global diplomatic presence and status of the PLO internationally, right? It's the UN uh, non-member observer state status of the General Assembly and 130 missions and embassies around the world. That's the big thing the Palestinians have gotten that Israel can't take away from them. And whoever has that speaks for the Palestinians on the world stage and at the Arab League and everywhere. And until now, it's, it's been Fatah and not Hamas. This is a long-term plan by Hamas to fight the Israelis tooth and nail. And they know that recent history shows you can make a very effective insurgency under the most onerous circumstances and with very little resources. Like anyone can make an IED and get a pistol. If you're willing to die, you can take out a couple soldiers every day or every week, and then you wave the bloody shirt and say, we are the national movement. Compare us who are fighting occupation forces over control of Palestinian land in Gaza every day with the PA, which is like the gendarmerie of the occupation in the West Bank. It's like a, a subcontracting police force for the Israelis, they will say. And the PLO, sitting at a negotiating table, listening to the crickets, uh, Khalid Mishal, Ismail Haniyeh, Musa Abu Marzuk, Fatih Hamad, etc., who are all in Doha, living a good life, but, you know, they, they used to be in control of the movement, but they were expelled from Gaza through an agreement with Israel, and they ended up going to Syria. But when the Syrian uh, revolution started, as I was saying before, the Brotherhood was a big part of it, and they had to flee Syria. They had to literally run away, and they found refuge in Qatar. And so now Qatar is the home of these guys, and that's where you go to talk to Hamas. They've become the diplomatic wing of Hamas. They've become like the guys on TV, 
And it's a useful thing for Hamas, but they don't have power in the organization. It does raise an interesting question about the positive role Qatar could play beyond the hostage negotiations if you could get Qatar to emerge as a de facto international fiduciary for Gaza, leading the reconstruction and getting these guys back in power in Hamas, the more moderate people they are, and they are more moderate than the military wing, um, a little bit anyway. And uh, if the leaders on the ground in Gaza, uh, Yahya Sinwar and Muhammad Daif and the others, are killed or captured, and uh, Qatar comes in to lead reconstruction, you could get these guys being the ones to say, okay, we, we will agree that some other Palestinian um, uh, who is not us and not Fatah, someone like, say, Fatah. Who is that? Fatah. This is what I want to know. Is, is it a fantasy on the West or Condi Rice back? I remember her comments when, yeah. you know, there were free elections and, and, and Fatah yep. and, and following up with Hamas and Gaza. What is the, what is the, what, what are people romancing exactly? Uh, yeah, that who is the I guy, Mohammed you know, Dalan? Right. Mohammed Dalan or some guy who went into an Israeli prison and learned Hebrew is going to suddenly reappear and win the hearts and minds well, of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip? It's not going to be Dahlan, but it could be Marwan Barghouti. If the Israelis... See, the big problem here in... Mar and I know this sounds like blaming one side only, but Israel really does have the cards here. The Israelis, if they were serious about, first of all, damaging Hamas politically as well as physically. I mean, they're damaging them physically. But if you wanted to damage them politically, you have to bolster their enemies, which is the Fatah guys. And they're doing nothing to do that. They still won't even give them the Palestinian tax money that Israel collects and is supposed to hand over. They won't give it to them for whatever reason. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. You were listening to some of the recent episode, The Meddled East. Catch the entire conversations wherever you get your pods. Finally, Simon Wright of The Economist came on to discuss the magazine's big cover package on China's bid to dominate electric cars. Simon, I was getting pretty whimsical this year for the year 1989 because, and, and this is related, I promise I'm coming back to it, is the Nikkei 225 index in Japan is within a stone's throw of its fateful 1989 high. I mean, this is shortly after the Japanese bought uh, Rockefeller Center in Manhattan. I mean, this is a few years after that infamous movie, Gung Ho. You might remember with Michael Keaton, the Japanese were coming for our auto industry. I mean, you had Sony, Panasonic, all these Japanese products everywhere taking over the world, the Walkman, the Discman. And it's striking to go back and think about 35 years. Not only did that not come to pass, but that was an epic asset bubble. You had a loss several decades. And I'm struck by if we just take the example of consumer electronics, of which China is clearly king, it spent 50 years dominating you know, the provisioning of these electronics and these parts, the absence of kind of Japanese brands in the house, where the iPhone is there, the smartphones are there, the Koreans have these things, and they've completely taken over where Japanese brands used to be. And I have friends who wonk out about the automobile industry, and they're saying, Yes, you might look at it right now as the U.S. and the Japanese kind of dominating this industry and the Koreans to a certain extent, but don't get too comfortable because the Chinese can disrupt it rather easily and, and they kind of already have started. 
Well, I think you're absolutely right to draw those comparisons. If you think about the uh, Japanese and then in turn the Koreans, they um, started from a very low base and now have a significant portion of the global um, car market. And in the US, both those firms are sort of a are both established there as well as, as well as Kia. What's interesting, though, is it took them an awfully long time to do that. It took them decades. And again, I think with this sort of this idea of Chinese speed, given other factors that we might we might talk about later on, the Chinese could do this much, much more quickly than the, Chi- the, the Japanese and the Koreans. How is that? I mean, there's one stat that really stood out in your in your package in the essay. Just five years ago, China shipped only a quarter as many cars as Japan, then the world's biggest exporter. This week, all right, let's timestamp it as the beginning of 2024, the Chinese industry claimed to have exported over 5 million cars, exceeding the Japanese total. China's biggest car maker, BYD, which stands for Build Your Dream, sold a half a million electric vehicles in the fourth quarter, leaving Tesla in the dust. By 2030, China could double its share of the global market to a third, ending the dominance of the West's national champions, especially in Europe. I'm imagining you're thinking of the likes of Volkswagen and, and Daimler, Benz and, and the like. I mean, that's that 2030 is not too far away. Well, that's exactly right. And the, 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 the reasons are that the Chinese cars are both pretty good and pretty cheap. And though the reason that is, is because, you know, although this has happened at China's speed, the roots of this were laid down a long while ago by the Chinese government, who took a bit of a gamble that electrification was the way to go. The Chinese always had this idea of being a global power in car making. Countries like to have a big car industry. It's sort of part of national pride. It's part of sort of national virility to have a car industry. Steel is the same as a national airline. And in order to have a car industry, it took the gamble to go down the route of electrification. It realised that, that that China couldn't compete with the sort of intricacies of the internal combustion engine. The companies that had 100 years or so experience of doing that were, 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 were way too far ahead. By creating a market for EVs in their own country, and also by creating a supply chain, not least for batteries, which are the most important bit of the, or the most expensive and important bit of, the, uh, of, of an electric car, it has created this this, this in, uh, internal um, domestic market, a huge domestic market, and that domestic market, you know, it can now think about exporting those both cheap and good electric cars. I mean, there was a time when electric uh, Chinese cars were terrible. The way the history of how the uh, the uh, the industry grew is instructive. To get into China, the Western car makers um, had to form joint ventures with uh, domestic car makers. They did so. Those domestic car makers just took all the money from the joint ventures, which was pouring in. Those joint ventures had 90% of the Chinese market, and they made their own cars that just weren't very good. That has all completely changed. And that's because with electrification, there have come these new companies that have looked to uh, Western car makers, Tesla in particular, as a benchmark. And so they're making good cars, and they're making very, very cheap cars. And that combination, I think, will take them a long way in the global market. But what about goodwill? I'm thinking about it here in the States and to a certain extent, you know, in Canada and in Europe and you go to Norway, Tesla is clearly dominant. And the starting price, I think, on the cheapest Model 3 is what, $38,000, $39,000. You're telling me that BYD can offer a car out of the lot for $12,000. Of course, there are differences, the battery, the staying power, the bells and whistles. But you're saying in the essay uh, and, and in the reporting that you've done that where we can increasingly take for granted a global charging network, you won't have to have these gigantic 500-mile 
solid state batteries or whatever they are. You can increasingly treat these things like smartphones. And again, 2024, you can walk into a Walgreens, a CVS, and buy a really cheap tablet or smartphone manufactured in some coastal city in China. And it's kind of almost like a disposable. You understand that it is what it is. Uh, but there is, again, zero name recognition in the United States. Again, that is an excellent point. Look, the Chinese won't have it all their own way. There are a variety of things that, that could hold the Chinese back. Certainly in the US, the incredibly high tariffs um, are, are, are sort of going to keep the Chinese out for a long while. They may be able to sneak in via the back door, via Mexico. But in Europe, where tariffs are much lower, you're absolutely, absolutely right. They're turning up in force. Now, they have to get some sort of brand recognition. But where they're playing in the market, in the sort of mass market... Brands are not quite as sort of uh, as important as they are right at the very top. It's you know if you're buying a BMW or a Mercedes, you're doing so because you want that badge on the front of your car because it says something about you as a person. You know it says I've I've arrived. I'm, but at the mass market, people are much less brand loyal. So I think you know that's not going to be an enormous drawback because they're much more inclined to look at price as as much as brand. Is there an analogy, for example, if I can show up and if to the extent I'm still interested in a uh, DVD player or flat screen TV, I could still to this day buy an RCA uh, brand or Thompson, you know, electronics things. And there's a Chinese cheap electronics manufacturer behind that that will ride that legacy goodwill, maybe from the 1980s, and sell me a dirt cheap TV. Why isn't that happening? I understand Geely Automotive, the Chinese auto manufacturer, controls Volvo and Polestar, why wouldn't somebody like a BYD want to backwards integrate into the brand recognition of a multinational that might have a tired nameplate? I'm thinking of a Mazda or others out there, and it's hard to break into Japan, and I understand there's cross-ownership, but haven't they done this with white goods? You're buying a GE washing machine to the extent they still make them. That's High Air or somebody else in China making these white goods and, and using a kind of a 100-year-old nameplate. If I understand your question, you're asking me, do you think the BYD should buy a brand? I mean, because well, why start it from scratch? Why come out of the gate and have to be someone like a, um, you know, a Huawei phone, which suddenly became stigmatized in the United States, whereas iPhones are decidedly manufactured in China and the supply chain is there in in Asia, but it's not looked at as a scary Chinese brand. Well, that's a great question. Look, I mean, the thing that would prevent me from buy, buying a BYD is that it stands for Build Your Dreams, and they have Build Your Dreams written on the back of the car, and that would that would be a deal breaker for me, I'm afraid. I don't think I should tolerate that. But you're right, other companies are going down that route. Um, SAIC, which is one of the state-owned brands, bought MG, which is a sort of a, a well-known old British band, brand, and the MG is now the biggest-selling Chinese EV in Europe. So, that, that, you know, that's perfectly possible. Um, that said, I think with BYD's case, they're going to do as much as they can to build a brand just by providing cheap, good cars. And I think I think they have a, a, a chance of doing that, just as Toyota and Kia have done. You were listening to some of our recent episode, China's Great Volt Forward. Catch the entire conversation wherever you listen to podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Natalie. Kim Zaninovich and the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business. If you are listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast length, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. The link, again, please subscribe and rate us, is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. And follow along on all social media at handle fulldradio. 
shout out to our listeners on Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. We are in North Carolina on WPVM. We are out in California on KPPQ. Message me if you'd like to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. And listen every week on Here and Now, the NPR show that I love to appear on. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>